Well, if you have a Bible, you can turn to Acts chapter 17. If you don't, we'll have it on the screen behind us. We've got a big passage this morning. It is uh, Acts 17, 16 to 34, and we're going to read the first half of it now, and we'll read the second half later. Um, And I'm going to take a sip of this water awkwardly, so... Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be preaching of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. This is the word of the Lord. Will you pray with me before we have a seat? Lord God Almighty, we come before you this morning humbly, and we are asking the question, is there a God? And I frankly feel insufficient to answer this question, but your creation and your word, and especially your son, Jesus, screams to our hearts, yes, there is a God. And we pray that you would speak through your word, through your Holy Spirit to each one of us this morning, whether we find ourselves as a follower of Jesus struggling with doubt, or whether we find ourselves being skeptical of you even exist, please speak to our hearts. And we pray this. In the most holy name of Jesus Christ, amen. You may be seated. So we're continuing our sermon series this week that's entitled, I Am Thomas. And each week we're examining a different big question that might be a question of doubt for people who are exploring Christianity or even Christians. And today's question is really fundamental to our existence as human beings I think um, there are very few universal questions, but deep down, everyone who's old enough to ask questions at all, in some way, we are all asking, is there a God? And I'll be honest with you and tell you, uh, this has been a difficult sermon for me. And it's not because I don't think there's an answer to the question, but it's more because there are so many questions around this question. There's so many different reasons why you might be asking this question, and I don't know why that is. And I know that I can't answer every question this morning. We are uh, still just a few weeks past Easter, where we celebrated the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And we hear a lot about what happened on that Friday. We hear a lot about what happened on that Sunday, but I always wonder What was it like for Mary on that Saturday 
when she's looking at her experience and she's thinking, I, I'm sure an angel spoke to me. I know that I'm a virgin who gave birth. I am sure that God told me who this man is. And yet everything in my experience tells me this was all bogus. He's in a grave. Can this be real? And I think of the psalmist, a man after God's own heart, who, write in holy, who wrote in holy scripture that we pray and sing things like, why have you fallen asleep? Where are you? Why have you turned your back on me? It's not what he knew to be true, but it was his experience. It's what it felt like. And I know some of you find yourselves there this morning. And I know I can't answer every question, but I do want to answer the question, is there a God? There's an entire discipline within Christianity called apologetics, and uh, it's devoted to defending the gospel. The word apologetics comes from the Greek word apologia. And I realize it sounds like apologize, but it actually means almost the exact opposite. It, it means to defend. So in 1 Peter 3.15, the apostle Peter instructs followers of Jesus that we should be always ready to give a defense, apologia. We should be always ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you. Uh, my mother-in-law is visiting us from Cincinnati. And yesterday she asked me what I was preaching on. And I said, I'm preaching on, is there a God? And my daughter, Lucy, who turns four tomorrow, overheard this. And she said, yes. Um, and I wish that it were that simple. I wish that I could just say, yes. Um, but with that sort of childlike faith, I want to tell you that there is a God and hopefully provide you with some compelling reasons for that answer. But I am trusting far more on the Holy Spirit and on God's word this morning than I am the arguments of learned men and women. Uh, but to get there, we're going to be looking at Paul's engagement with the Athenians and considering how he answered this question, is there a God? But I thought if we're tackling the question, is there a God, we probably ought to start with some bathroom humor. So that's, that's, that's how this sermon is kicking off. Last week, I was using the bathroom here in the hall. And if you haven't, if you haven't figured, not in the hall, like there's a, <laughs> there's a bathroom in the hall. Um, if you haven't pieced it together, we're, we're a church, but we're also a school. And that bathroom is the closest to the church offices. And it's just, uh, it's just one toilet and a sink and you lock the door. And when you lock it, this red thing comes on that says in use, you can't open the door. It's very clear when someone is in there. But um, on this particular day, someone kept jiggling the doorknob and knocking. And at first I thought, well, this poor guy really needs to go. Um, but then they kept saying like, come on, man, hurry up and making animal noises and stuff like that. And it became immediately apparent to me that this was a student and they had no idea that I was not a student. Um, so I intentionally didn't say anything so that it would be especially shocking when I opened the door. And, uh, I, um, I have, well, 
I'm five foot four. I was wearing a t-shirt and it said sad songs on it. Like it wasn't nearly as cool of a story as like, I see Tanner Johnston sitting here. If he had walked out with his police uniform and his hand resting on his firearm, it would have been much more impressive. But, but they got a five, four, you know, little man, but I have, I have some facial hair. But still, it was enough that when I opened the door, his face went from this huge, like mischievous grin to like, oh shoot. Um, and he tried to play it cool. He was like, hey. Um, and I was like, hey. And uh, when I finally faced him, you want to know what I said? You got to stay awake through this sermon if you want to find out, because I'm not telling you right now. Um, but why am I telling you this weird bathroom story? Because the Athenians that Paul faced off with were wise men and the philosophers and the scholars, and they were sure they had it figured all out, but they had no idea who they were actually messing with. And I don't mean Paul, but I mean the God of all creation. So we're going to jump right in. We've got a lot of exciting stuff to cover. So let's look at verse 16. It says, now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So Paul, just for context, is waiting for Silas and Timothy to come join him in Athens. We don't know how long he was going to have to wait, but he had some time to check out the city, and it was upsetting to him to see how many idols and temples and shrines and altars there were. So upon his spirit being provoked, verse 17 says, he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. So this was Paul's typical fashion. When he would go to a new city, the first place he would go was the synagogue. And the synagogue, you can think of it as basically like that's the local church for Jews. He knew he was going to find devout Jews there, and they were at least going to have an understanding of the one true God. They were going to have an understanding of the Torah, and they were going to have an understanding of the prophets, and he could reason with them and say, hey, the fulfillment of all of these prophecies is found in Jesus Christ. But he also, when he was in Athens, went to the marketplace, or you might have heard it called the Agora, which was a public place with lots of people, and in those days, it was actually common practice for philosophers and teachers to stand and teach openly there in the Agora. And in verse 18, it tells us some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him there in the Agora. So I want to tell you what that means. Athens had been the philosophical center of the ancient world for centuries. By Paul's time, it was kind of on the decline. It was kind of being, uh, you know, trumped by Alexandria and these big cities of learning. But it was still a very important place. It was... Um, an important place for art and architecture, but it was also renowned for its four major schools of philosophy. And uh, you'll see them on the screen here in just a moment. And uh, the four major schools, there was the Academy founded by Plato. Um, there was the Lyceum founded by Aristotle. Now, even if you're not uh, up on your philosophy, I imagine you've at least heard of Plato and Aristotle. 
But then there's the garden of Epicurus, he might not, um, I didn't even say that right, Epicurus, um, and the painted porch of Zeno. Those last two you might not be as familiar with, but they're significant because it's people from those two schools that Paul encountered. So Epicureans were followers of Epicurus, which is number three there on the list. Epicurus taught that pleasure was the chief goal of life. If you want to know how to live the good life, the chief goal is pleasure. And the particular type of pleasure that he held highest was a life of tranquility, free from pain, free from worry, free from, uh, he called them disturbing passions like fear and anxiety. Don't worry about death. There's no afterlife anyway. Um, Epicurus didn't deny the existence of gods, but he taught that if they happen to be real, they're far off. They have nothing to do with us. We don't need to do anything with them. So he was a practical atheist. And Epicureans were naturalists. That means they believed there was a natural explanation for everything. So they rejected uh, supernatural or spiritual explanations for anything. This was 2,000 years ago, but it sounds pretty familiar, doesn't it? There's no God. If there is, whatever it is, it's far off. We have science. We have what we can observe to explain everything. If you look at the fourth school on the list, the Painted Porch, you'll see that it was founded by Zeno. The followers of Zeno were the Stoics. Um, and the Stoics, it took its name from Painted Stoa, which was basically a porch. And ironically, that porch was located in the Agora. That's where Zeno used to teach his followers from. It's where Paul may have been uh, encountering the Stoics here in the Agora. But Zeno's teaching focused on self-sufficiency and virtue. So you want the good life? Be virtuous. That's salvation. That's the best possible life. Stoics believed that there was a divine force in the world that's within each of us. But they didn't believe that that divine force was actually personal, that it was actually a someone that you could know. It was just sort of this spiritual thing. The good life for them was getting in touch with this divine force and harnessing it and living in harmony with it. And uh, if you've heard the term stoic and don't know about the philosophy, you've probably heard it in the context of being like stone-faced or emotionless or something like that. And that's because stoics believed that if you tap into true virtue, you're going to be kind of unfazed. Like you're not going to have super high highs and you're not going to have super low lows. You're just going to be kind of stone-faced. Fun group of guys. Um, They're like, if you have ever gone to school and thought like, this professor is brilliant. I love listening to them, but I don't really want to get pizza with this person. Um, That's who the Stoics were. So what did the Epicureans and Stoics say? Well, verse 18 tells us, some said, what does this babbler wish to say? And that's obviously an insult, but like upon studying this and figuring out what it's about, In Greek, it was this word that referred to a bird who would pick up scraps here and there, and it insinuated that Paul was just sort of like a pseudo-intellectual who just picked up scraps of philosophy and teaching and didn't actually even understand it himself. He was just saying a bunch of mess that he threw together to try to sound important. 
Others said he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And this is significant for two reasons. Uh, the first is that in Greek, the word for resurrection is anastasis. It's where we get the name Anastasia. Anastasis is a feminine word. So when the Greeks heard Anastasis, they actually thought that Paul was talking about a masculine God named Jesus, Jesus, and a feminine goddess named Anastasis. But he was talking about Jesus and the resurrection. But there's something also significant about the Athenians calling Paul a preacher of foreign divinities. It's the same charge that had been brought against Socrates four and a half centuries earlier. He was charged with teaching foreign divinities, and he was tried before the Areopagus and condemned to death for corrupting the youth. So with that in mind, look at what verse 19 tells us. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting. So to us, we're like just trying to figure out how to pronounce these words. But to the original audience of this text, it would have been like, oh, shoot, the Areopagus. That's where, that's where Socrates went to die. The Areopagus wasn't actually a place. It was a group of people. It was the highest court of Athens. And it consisted of people who had held office in Athens. They were well acquainted with philosophy. And by Paul's day, it was less likely that he was going to be executed. But what they did is they would investigate new teachings and determine if the person teaching this would be granted the right to publicly lecture. So basically, he got caught publicly lecturing in the marketplace without a license to do it. And you'll notice they didn't invite Paul to the Areopagus for pita and hummus. It says they took him and brought him to the Areopagus. So Paul is now in a place where he has to address a group of people with varying beliefs about the gospel. Some were very superstitious and worshiped idols. They thought there was a whole slew of moody gods that needed to be appeased. Some believed that there may or may not be any gods, but all that matters is what we can prove through observation and natural explanations. Some believed that there isn't a God so much as a divine energy that's in you and me and mice and trees and all living things. In other words, Paul addressed a group of people that thought and believed very much like a group of skeptics that you may encounter today. There were basically atheists and agnostics and uh, people with vague spiritualism, New Age beliefs, Eastern beliefs. When uh, N.T. Wright, he's one of my favorite biblical scholars, when he talks about Paul's address to the Areopagus, he compares it to a chess master who can play multiple opponents at once and win uh, because Paul was able to respectfully speak to all these different people in such a way that met each of them where they were and confronted them all with the truth. And the truth isn't a doctrine or a philosophy. The truth is a person. It's the person of Jesus Christ. So I, I told you there's this discipline called apologetics. 
And within apologetics, there are different methods. And I don't believe there one is like right or the best way. I think there are um, different uses for different methods of apologetics and the context kind of determines what's going to be best at any time. But I'm going to give you, this is, this is a little bit like nerdy academic Christianity, but I'm going to give you three of the more prominent methods of apologetics. Um, and then I want to show you how Paul kind of employed these three methods as he spoke uh, to the Areopagus. So the most prominent, the most well-known is a method that has come to be known uh, as classical apologetics because it's probably the most well-known. And classical apologetics gives arguments for the existence of God based on reason and ordinary experiences of nature. So for example, a classical argument might be something like this. None of us have uh, ever observed Joe Creech is going to crack me because I said none of us have. None of us has ever. He, he's like MC Grammar. Um, <laughs> none of us has ever observed something coming from nothing, right? We've never just seen something appear. Um, so why would we conclude that a fine-tuned universe came from nothing? That would be a classical apologetics argument. Another classical argument is the moral argument. Skeptics often ask something like this. If there's a loving God, then why is there so much evil in the world? And I will say that is a fair question that even Christians, even devout followers of God often find ourselves asking this. If there's a loving God, then why is there so much evil in the world? So the response from a classical apologist might be something like this. If we're able to objectively classify good and evil, if we can all agree like children dying, that's evil, that is not good. If, if we're able to objectively classify good and evil, that means there must be some sort of moral law governing the universe. And if there is a moral law, there must be a moral law giver. Otherwise, it would all be arbitrary. So this points to the existence rather than the non-existence of God. Do you kind of follow that argument? It's logical. If you say that there's good and evil, then there must be something that determines what is good and evil. These arguments get us to the point of a deity, but they don't tell us, is this deity personal? Can we know him? Is he good? Um, the classical apologists have to then get us to the one true God of the Bible, and this is when a classical apologist will introduce the arguments for the historical reliability of scripture, the fulfillment of prophecy and miracles, especially the resurrection of Jesus. It's interesting stuff, frankly, that I wish we had time to get into today, but it's a lot. Uh, classical apologists, and this is an important thing to note, do not generally use scripture to defend their views, at least initially, because it's kind of assumed that whoever they're defending this view to doesn't believe in scripture. So it would be kind of considered a circular argument. If you want to know more about classical apologetics, you probably know some of the big names. C.S. Lewis is a big one, R.C. Sproul, Norman Geisler, and um, a living scientist who's a very prominent um, classical apologist is William Lane Craig. So there's a second method of apologetics that is evidential apologetics. 
And it's similar to the classic method, but it kind of skips past the logical um, proving that there's a deity, and it focuses on accumulating historical evidence. The resurrection of Jesus as a historical fact is foundational to this approach. So for example, if we're looking at the resurrection, we can look at the number of witnesses to the risen Christ, which is over 500. Uh, We can look at the fact that many of them died defending what they witnessed. Usually you're not willing to die for something that you made up or you don't actually believe. We can look at the fact that the Gospels name women as the first eyewitnesses, who in that time would not have been considered uh, reliable witnesses. If you're going to make this up, make the story better than that, guys. But they're saying what actually happened. But we can look at all this and conclude that it is very likely to have happened. And if this happened, then it must be explained by something like the God of the Bible. And if this happened, then we need to examine the claims that Jesus made about God and himself in scripture. So we get to who God is from historical evidence. Uh, If you've read or seen the movie, The Case for Christ, this is very much the method that Lee Strobel employs. In fact, he came to Christ kind of in this way because he was an investigative journalist. So it was like the history, the evidence, the facts led him there. Um, So Evidential apologists are John W. Montgomery, Clark Pinnock, and Lee Strobel are something you can check out. The third thing that I want to tell you about is presuppositional apologetics. This is super nerdy, guys. I'm going to try to make it practical in just a minute. I I get this is nerdy. But uh, presuppositional apologetics assumes that everyone comes to the question of the existence of God with a presupposition something that you already bring to the argument, um, something that you already believe and hold as an authority. So for an atheist, their highest authority might be their logic or their reason or empirical evidence. For a Christian, my highest authority is the word of God as contained in scripture. So that's what I'm going to bring as my highest authority. And classical apologists... um, they don't use scripture in their arguments because they claim that it would be circular. I don't know if you get that, but it's kind of like if you're in grade school and you're given a definition of a word and your teacher says, you can't use the word in the definition. It's like, if I'm trying to prove to you that scripture is true and you don't believe it, a classical apologist will say, okay, well, then I'm not going to use scripture because you don't believe it. But a presuppositional apologist argues all arguments are circular in the end because we appeal to our highest authority. You think it's your brain, and so you're appealing to your brain. I believe it's scripture, so I'm appealing to scripture. You kind of follow me? I, one of the like granddaddies of uh, presuppositional apologetics is John Frame, and he was my theology professor in seminary, so I feel like I'm doing a really horrible job of explaining presuppositional apologetics to you. Like I'm real glad he's not here this morning. Um, but that's, that's the gist. So John Frame, Greg Bonson, Francis Schaeffer, those would be examples of presuppositional apologists. If you don't remember that and you're interested in it, email me, talk to me later, and I can give you a whole bunch of names that mean nothing to you. Um, so now with these three models in mind, we're going to read the rest of this passage, uh, 
bit by bit. Let's read Paul's address to the Areopagus and see how he defended the gospel. We'll start in verse 22. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship is unknown, this I proclaim to you. So it didn't take Paul long at all to come to the conclusion that in every way they were very religious. In every direction he saw shrines, altars, idols. And I would make the argument that things haven't changed a lot since then. If Paul visited Orlando, he would see the same things just packaged in different ways. He would see superstition. He would see idols. He would see billboards and ads. He would see shop windows. He would see altars to the false gods of beauty and money and power and sex. And I have to wonder, are we any less religious than the Athenians? Are we any less arrogant? But Paul didn't address the Areopagus with contempt or judgment. He addressed them with kindness and respect. But he did let them know, I'm going to tell you something that you don't already know. I'm going to tell you about this unknown God. So let's keep reading in verse 24. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. He made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he's actually not far from each one of us. He starts with what would be more of a presuppositional approach to apologetics. Paul is giving them a summary of what God has revealed about himself in Scripture. He's basically giving them a summary of Genesis 1 and 2. God made the world and everything in it. The very breath you breathe, he gave it to you. He's Lord of heaven and earth. And then he brings this to their own experience of what they do with their gods. The Lord doesn't live in a temple. A temple can't contain him. There's nothing that he needs that you can offer him. And then in verse 28, Paul actually quotes two of their own poets. Look at that. He says, for in him we live and move and have our being. You've probably heard this because it's in scripture, but he's actually quoting one of their poets. And then says, and even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Fun fact, Stoics came from the founder Zeno. You know where Zeno is from? Tarsus, a city of learning and philosophy that was surpassing Athens. You know where Saul, Paul was from? He was from Tarsus. He knew their stuff. He knew their teachings. So he made himself and his teaching relatable. And from this foundation, he switches to more of a classical apologetic approach. Look at verse 29. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. 
Basically, if God created everything and needs nothing, if we're his offspring, which your own poets say, then it follows that he's not anything like a gold idol. He must be much greater than that. See, the Areopagus thought they were trying Paul, but it was actually the other way around. The philosophers and idolaters have been found guilty of breaking the first two commandments. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. They've been found guilty and they've been found guilty of ignorance. But there's hope. In verse 30, there's a call to repentance. And it's the same thing that Jesus Christ called each one of us to do when he first started teaching. It wasn't just hellfire and damnation. It was repent, believe. The kingdom of God is at hand. It's good news if you repent and believe. Look at verse 30 with me. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he's fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. I told you the evidential apologetic approach is based on using historical evidence, namely the resurrection of Christ. And here we see Paul using that. He calls them to repent and believe in Jesus Christ. He warns them that judgment is coming and he grounds his assurance of these things in the evidence that God raised Jesus from the dead. It's a little harder for us to sell these days, but in Paul's day, he could say, you don't believe me? There are 500 people alive today who can attest to the fact that they saw the risen Lord. So back to the bathroom. If, uh, if you walked in late, that's a weird thing to say. Um, the student who was heckling me through the bathroom door thought sure he knew what was on the other side of that door. But then when he was confronted with the truth, it wasn't just another student on the other side. And I realized... I definitely realize I'm treading on some uh, dangerous territory because I'm giving you this metaphor in which I am God in this story. That's not the point that I'm trying to make. When the student saw me, I could read on his face that he thought he was in trouble. And if I had been a teacher or faculty member, he probably would have been. Um, But I said, and I'll be honest with you, I was a little ticked. I I literally prayed before I opened the door because I wanted to just drop the hammer on this kid. Um, But I really thought, like, how in this small, stupid scenario could I be Jesus to him? And I said, you didn't know I was an adult, did you? And he said, no, I, I thought you were someone else. And, uh, I mean, nothing was profound from that point on. I I didn't get mad at him. I just said, that's not how you want to treat somebody. You know, someone could be having a really hard time in here. So just be kind, be kind, because you don't know who's on the other side of that door. And he said, yes, sir. And he apologized. Um, He was not in trouble. 
When we're confronted with the truth of God, our ignorance is exposed and we're left with no defense. Paul warns of the coming judgment and assures us that just as sure as Jesus rose from the grave, you can be sure judgment is coming because God is Lord of heaven and earth. He's all powerful. He's bigger than we can fathom. Our philosophies can't contain him, even our Christian philosophies. But he's good. Verse 27 tells us that God strategically put each one of us where he did in space and in time that we should seek God and perhaps feel our way toward him and find him. Yet he's actually not far from each one of us. He's not far from you. And you can escape the judgment, the judgment for your ignorance and your lawlessness and your shame if you just repent and believe. It's not a lot to ask. It's not a lot of hoops to jump through. Uh, I'm not going to read the last few verses, but basically the outcome of it is some people believed and some people didn't. And that's always how it is when we're confronted with the truth. Jesus promised us, if they rejected me, they're going to reject you. But he who accepts me, accepts him who sent me. Accepting Jesus is accepting God. I don't claim to be an apologist in the technical sense, but there's a sense in which every follower of Jesus is called to give a defense for this thing that we believe because it's not just something that we believe. It's something that we're supposed to lay down our lives and follow. It's not a belief. It's a person. And I like reading apologists and hearing them debate. And in fact, my favorite podcast is this British podcast called Unbelievable. It's like unbelievable with a question mark. If apologetics are interesting to you at all, I would encourage you to listen to it. Almost every episode is a conversation between a believer and an atheist or an agnostic or something like that. I think these sorts of things help us have more confidence in what we believe as Christians, but I don't think I've ever met anyone who started believing in God because they were out-argued. It's rare that logical proofs and historical evidence changes someone's mind and heart. I think most people are wrestling with the existence of some sort of God. They're more like Epicureans who think maybe God exists, but I don't know that he cares about me or that he's actually going to do anything. If he's there, why am I still in this situation? Why are people still dying? Why are things not how they're supposed to be? But that feeling that this is not how it's supposed to be is your heart longing for God because things aren't the way they're supposed to be. This is not what we are created for. And Jesus is making all things new. But he doesn't do it in the timing or the way that I would choose for him to do it. My son Jude turned two a couple of weeks ago and my mom gave him a card with a check for $75 inside. And he let it hit the floor, he crumpled it up and handed it to me and started playing with the card because it held no value to him. He, he had no idea what it was that he just crumpled up. 
I want God to fix my problems and fix our world, and I want him to make things easier for me, but he gives me something better than I realize most of the time. He gives me himself. He gives me his presence. And I can't prove that to you. But when anyone repents and believes that Jesus is the son of God who came to give his life as a ransom for many, they receive the gift of God's presence. Paul tells us we can seek him and find him and he's not far from you. Jesus didn't try to prove to his disciples that he was the son of God. If you read what he said to them, he wasn't beating himself up to come up with these logical proofs. Instead, he invited them, come and see. Come follow me. Come see what kind of person I am. And I want to invite you to do the same. Jeremiah 33, 3 says, this is God's word to you, to me. He says, call to me and I will answer you and tell you great and unsearchable things that you do not know. If you want to know if there's a God, don't ask someone else. Ask him. I believe probably more compelling than any arguments that you'll hear is seeing God at work in the life of someone else, seeing redemption in a marriage, seeing someone go through suffering and hardship and still somehow like Mary on that Saturday when her son was in the grave holding on, somehow I still believe and I still have hope and joy and peace that transcends all understanding because there is nothing in my situation that would point to the fact that there is a God, but I believe because he has been real. That's better evidence, I think, for most people than any proofs that I could give you. But even beyond that, I say, if you want to know if there's a God, don't ask someone else. Ask God, because he's more than you can imagine, and he will answer. Let's pray. God, we bow our heads, we close our eyes, we appeal to you right now as someone we cannot see and we cannot hear. And we desperately, desperately need you by your spirit, by your son, Jesus Christ, to show us that there's not just a God, but there's one true God. And that you're not far from each of us, that you can be found, that you can be known. There's hope, there's love. And we have nothing to do to receive that other than simply believe. Lord, we believe. Help our unbelief. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.